Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged to have as a guest today, Benno Vanden Torin. I'm going to read a little bit of uh, his bio here. Uh, He is professor of intercultural theology at the Protestant Theological University, and that's in the Netherlands. I'm not going to butcher the pronunciation of the city there. He is taught in French-speaking Africa and at Wycliffe Hall at Oxford University. He's uh, author or co-author of a number of books, including Christian Apologetics as Cross-Cultural Dialogue and Reasons for My Hope Responding to Non-Christian Friends. Today, we're going to be discussing his new book with co-author Kang Santan titled Humble Confidence, a Model for Interfaith Apologetics. And for those of you watching on YouTube, there's the cover of the fine book. Professor, welcome to the program. Grace, great to be with you. It's good to have you here. I I have been enjoying the book and I've been following the uh, breadcrumbs back to other examples of your work. Uh, to take uh, advantage of there. I'd like to begin on a personal note. Can you describe your background in theology and and how you brought not only your background in your studies, but the places in which you've studied and reflected and how you brought that to bear on the book? Yeah, Um, I'm uh, from the Netherlands, um, grew up in the Reformed tradition there, was as a young person, because of my own personal history, I think, greatly interested in apologetics, because I felt that for my own growth in faith, I needed to deal with many of the intellectual questions that were facing me. Um, Then I wrote in relation to that a PhD on uh, a PhD thesis on Karl Barth and apologetics, because Karl Barth was in our context, you know, the main critic of apologetics. And people said, if you need apologetics, you don't have true faith because faith is based on Christ. Um, Actually, the the main thing I concluded from that research was that uh, Barth rightly argued that apologetics can be done in some way, he didn't call it apologetics, but that if we do it, it should always refer to Christ as the basis of our faith. Um, And that much Western apologetics doesn't work because it presupposes a basis of our faith outside Christ in uh, a modern enlightenment rationalism. Um, And actually that that came came to have a new meaning when uh, closely after finishing that PhD, um, we, my wife and I, were sent by a mission to uh, the Central African Republic, French-speaking Africa, uh, and one of the things I was teaching was Christian apologetics. And I discovered actually that a lot of the apologetic books I'd taken with me, and uh, the, uh, the the arguments I'd come across in the West, were not at all relevant in that context because people were asking entirely different questions. And then actually. Um, uh, my, my engagement with Bart helped me in a different way because I realized that we we need to bring people to Christ, but they come from very different uh, uh, contexts. And none of these find in themselves, you know, a basis for faith in Christ. We need to find a basis in Christ, but yet there may be various bridges to be built. 
And of course, Karl Barth was very critical of those bridges. But I, I think if we have a, a, a solid belief in creation, we, we, we should allow for those bridges. But what those are, are of course, greatly shaped by the cultural context in which people find themselves. You know, you, we, we, there are, there is something universal about human beings, but there is no universal human being. Every human being I encounter is deeply shaped by a cultural tradition. Um, so that led me to writing this book on um, on uh, apologetics as cross-cultural dialogue, taking uh, the rootedness, the cultural rootedness, and, and the rootedness in community of people much more serious. And uh, then I came to know Kang Santana, and we thought that actually we would also need that in relating to people from other relig religions. And that then leads to this book about um, apologetics in relation to people with uh, deep religious roots in other communities, in other traditions. It's a fascinating backstory. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on uh, how you came to work with Kang Santan? And can you talk about those pieces of the puzzle? He he is in email communications with me, referred to you as the, the theologian in this, and he brings the cultural. But I think you both obviously have aspects of that. It's together, even though you may have areas of specialization. Yeah, so uh, Kang Santan uh, basically uh, came from, uh, uh, his, uh, with his experience as a missiologist, uh, a missiologist focusing on interreligious relations. My focus was more on apologetics. Um, so in that sense, we had combined experiences and uh, or, 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 or different experiences, different theological baggage, uh, but a, a shared sensitivity, which we discovered when we met uh, first in Vancouver, later in, in, in Oxford, and then again in Malaysia, where our, our, our paths sort of crossed. Um, and there is also a difference. When you think about interreligious apologetics, you realize that you can never cover that as a single author. And when we thought about more reflection on this, we thought maybe you need sort of a, a, a volume in which you ask specialists knowing these different religions. But then we realized actually that, that there is such a need for a deeper thinking about what apologetics is, that, 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 that it would be better to write it with a small team of two. And then our experiences also combine that um, Kang San has a lot of experience with Asian religions uh, because he's from uh, a Chinese uh, theologian from Malaysia originally, now working in the UK. Uh, I had much more experiences, say, in a more secular context in Europe, where I grew up, um, and with primal religions in Africa, where Islam was also a major conversation partner. So, so together we felt also we could cover a number of main religious traditions. Let's talk about a, um, it may seem like a minor issue, but for folks who work in this area, it, it, it's an area of concern. And you talk about the definition of interfaith in the first part of the book. Uh, you're talking about interfaith apologetics, in especially in American, I think in the UK context, interfaith and I'm speaking in a generalization, it is a like-minded group of people from different religious traditions who want to work together. And in those contexts, apologetics and persuasion <clears throat> is just completely off limits. You're not using interfaith in that kind of definitional meaning. No, I, I, we, we, uh, we've been doubting between interreligious and interfaith. Um, and uh, we, we used interfaith because we, 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 
interreligious often stress uh, studies religion as a as a purely human phenomenon and we feel that all faiths religious traditions are in a way also responses to a transcendent reality that's why we use interfaith um we actually think that one 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 of the problems in the western way of dealing with interreligious relationships is that people feel that that there's a there's a, a strong general idea that you can only really relate to people from other religions peacefully if you put your own religious commitments between brackets and uh, uh, our own experiences that relating to other religious traditions that's simply not true uh, people who are deeply religious are committed to certain truth claims and they they can only be mutual understanding if you take that serious um so so we feel that actually if you want to take people utterly serious you need to take their truth claims seriously and therefore engage apologetically with them so you're you're not going the more relativistic interfaith kind of way uh this is something very different this is something very, very different because there is there is a deep uh, uh, it, it's based on a belief, deep conviction that uh, the that Christ is cross culturally relevant, that this truth is a transcultural truth, uh, valid for all. Um, and then we want to share it. Um, but that in order to do so, you need to realize that everyone you talk to is deeply embedded in a um in a certain cultural context in a community and even as a christian you are also you know there are, there is no supra cultural truth abstracted from a context that's why we like the idea of transcultural truth there's something you can uh, you you can share transculturally but even the christian truth of course was sort of uh, originates from a specific historical cultural context but christians believe that it's universally relevant well as you know you you we talked before we started recording you've you've seen some of my work and i'm so thankful to see it mentioned in, in your fine volume here but years ago i was involved in apologetics to new religious movements in the west and i came to see serious problems with it and i'll be honest it it did leave many times a bad taste in my mouth about apologetic approaches you're trying to you're rec you recognize some of these shortcomings and you and your co-author are creating a new model what what led you what what did you see in the field that said you know what i i think some of these western approaches just aren't doing what they need to be doing um, i th i think some of our uh, our our developments in thinking about apologetics are uh, parallel to yours in 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 your search for a new form of apologetics uh, first uh, apologetics should be holistic you 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 cannot really relate merely to sort of the rational aspect of someone you know people are uh, embodied human beings they are emotional human beings their way of thinking is shaped by their uh, affections that is what but what they feel what they desire what they want um by their embodiedness in a community so it should be holistic um yet 
that it, it should be holistic, sorry, it should also be contextual because it relates to people in different contexts where people have different plausibility structures, you might say. There's different things that are plausible for them. There's different things that they accept uh, that are parallel to Christianity or that differentiate them from Christianity. And um, yet um, that doesn't mean that reason doesn't have a place, that argument doesn't have a place. Um, and that's not only true for Christianity, because we believe that we accept Jesus Christ as the way to God, as the supreme revelation of God, uh, for good reasons. That's also true for adherents of other religions. Adherents of other religious traditions often feel that their religion is uh, rationally superior, and you cannot really engage with them unless you relate to those claims to be a rational faith. Well, uh, you mentioned the need to not only do an apologetic that's embodied, but also also culturally embedded. Uh, years ago, one of the then controversial ideas that we tried to introduce was to think of new religious movements in the West as as small cultures microcultures, and then to draw upon the principles of missiology to try and communicate within those subcultures. And, and as I said, that got some, uh, it was, had mixed reviews, but but surely with the model that you folks are, are developing here, how, are you, how do you want us to understand the significance of, of culture, not only for those we relate to, but our own cultural assumptions that we may not even be aware of? Yeah. I think I like the idea of small cultures in a way. Um, because uh, there is a certain tradition of interreligious apologetics that treats religions as coherent worldview systems um, that have a certain sis a systematic coherence that are mainly rational system and that you can compare compare with others. So you can do comparisons with worldviews and see which one is most rational, which one is most empirically valid, etc. And uh, the, the problem, of course, is that people, that, that, that religions are very amongst themselves, that there are different stresses, different tensions, different foci, and that people even relate to their religious traditions differently. Um, so there are certain commonalities in Islam, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, uh, but you need to be very aware of the differences. Um, and, and one of the things we do in our book is that we actually say when you relate to different traditions, please, we, we, we need to focus on a certain substream, not necessarily because it's the mo most dominant substream, because, but we need one example uh, to, to see how it might work in other ways. Um, and um, th then, of course, you, you see that within those substreams, uh, people relate differently to the substreams. Some people are part of a religious community, but are in a way innerly um, disengaged They're, uh, or they're disoriented in their traditions. There are others who are deeply committed. There are some who are deeply committed to the community, but not to the truth. Others are deeply committed to the truth, but not to the community. You know, so 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 people uh, live in it differently. Um, that means be aware of differences between traditions and of different ways people relate. So uh, that means also that apologetics and also should be very dialogue dialogical. L listening should be an important part. Where are you? Uh, what is happening in your life? 
where might God actually be leading you if we believe that the God of Jesus Christ is also present in other places? Uh, a couple of years ago, I read an intriguing article. I think it was from a social psychological perspective that was informing theology. And it talked about the need to, to shift from dialogos to diapathos. That is, we, we want to retain the logical, rational component of interactions, but we also recognize that human beings are emotional creatures where emotion yeah. and reason work together. In, in your work, uh, have you seen anything that leads you to believe that emotions are a significant aspect of an apologetic approach? Um, I, I, I guess so. Yeah. And and we should be very careful not to say, you know, you have a reason, a, 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 you know, an aspect of, of, of reason, an aspect of the will, an aspect of the emotions, as if you can neatly separate them. Um, that is what you might what what was used to be called faculty psychology. You know, you have different faculties and they relate to each other. In fact, our emotions and our reasons are deeply intertwined. You know, uh, um, Augustine already said it's it's uh, very hard to uh, to argue to to argue with someone who doesn't want to listen. <laughs> you know, uh, I've I've tried that with teenagers. Um, so be aware of that, be aware how it shapes reasoning, but there are also points of contact. It's not that your emotions are mainly barriers. There are also points of contact. Um, I remember engaging in a, a long-term dialogue of about half a year. I had uh, weekly meetings with a Buddhist friend um, and there was a certain tension in his thinking between uh, the fact that according to his uh, Buddhist theology, um, personal relationships were to be bypassed uh, because he needed to disattach himself from all personal engagement because it kept himself away from what was truly worthwhile. And yet, in fact, he had a deep personal attachment to the most important persons around him. You know, so actually there, his emotional attachment, which he felt to be drawing him away from the truth, was at, was a point of contact, uh, a, a bridge we could build because it was something we could we shared and about which I could explain how actually those deep attachments would be understood from a Christian perspective that says actually that God is personal, God is love, and therefore God gives deep meaning and ultimate significance to the personal relationships that we experience. Uh, I think that's very helpful. Uh, in terms of this embedded idea and being more self-aware in our apologetic processes, I remember years ago, I think it started in the UK and then it came over to the US, there was an alpha course. It was an attempt to try and introduce Christianity to other people. And I think one of the shortcomings was it often asked questions that made sense to the church, but it didn't really connect with the people we said we wanted to connect with. How can we do pursue an interfaith apologetic process that is more sensitive to where the other is culturally embedded? Um, part of it is, uh, is um, listen, of course. It will take time. You can, of course, um, converse in different ways at different levels. Some conversations are really valuable, even if they're conversations in passing. You know, I, I may meet 
I remember meeting uh, for the first time in my life a Sikh on a uh, railway platform in Paris. Uh, we had a conversation for about 20, 20 minutes, uh, which I think was valuable. We talked about our uh, our uh, our faith commitments, uh, had some valid exchange, but I didn't understand anything in depth in Sikhism. You know that would mean need more. Um, so so take time, and that also means that uh, as a Christian community, some of us are better placed to talk to specific communities than others. Let's not suppose that someone can do all. Um, and it also means that you may want to listen to Christians that are living in specific environments that may know, say, Hinduism much better than Westerners would do, you know, um, uh, and that may know much more about the varieties of Hinduism. One of the things we really learned uh, about Hinduism in this in this process. Uh, when I discovered that in much Western apologetics, when it dialogues with Hinduism, it it dialogues mostly with Advaita Vedanta Hinduism, which is a sort of Brahmanic philosophical Hinduism. But talking to Hindus, uh, uh, I realized that this is a very specific form. It's an elite form. It's also a form that many people in India themselves experience as oppressive. It, it's a group that claims that they are the real representatives of Hinduism, and others might not even recognize that. And it's great to realize that there are different forms of Hinduism. Some are much closer to primal religion. Uh, we actually, in our book, uh, chose to dialogue particularly with Bhakti Hinduism uh, because of its strong focus on devotion to a god, uh, uh, which is a, a a great point of contact with uh, with Christianity. Well, was there any uh, reflection on the idea to an openness to a mutual apologetic influence? If if we're asking ourselves to utilize and draw upon a better apologetic with people in other religious traditions, many times I have seen Christians shut down and unwilling to consider the ideas of the other. And I, I recognize they consider them spiritually dangerous and so on, but doesn't there need to be a mutual openness even in the apologetic and persuasion effort? I think I think there is a there is a mutual openness. Um and in that sense it is it it is true that uh apologetics uh, a real apologetic dialogue implies the risk you might say of conversion to the position of the others. Otherwise I'm not truly open. Um, that is actually why uh, the question becomes really important. Why do I actually have confidence, sufficient confidence in Christ so that I can listen to others without uh, feeling um, uh, vulnerable? Uh, that is why we call our book Humble Confidence. It's about humble listening, yet being confident that we do not need to be scared to listen to others. Um Furthermore, as, as Christians, I think we have reasons to believe that we can learn from others while remaining Christians. We believe that uh, that we, we, we believe that the Holy Spirit is not shut up in the church. Uh, we believe that God, the creator, can be known in other places. And that means that in dialoguing with others, we can learn, we can be um, enriched, uh, we can be sharpened. Um, So I think that a confidence in the ultimate significance of Christ does not 
exclude the possibility of learning, but we also need that confidence in the ultimate significance of Christ if we want to be truly open to others um, and w- without a fear of others shutting us down. You know, so so you might say that uh, when you engage in apologetic dialogue, there there are two risks. So on on the one hand, there is a risk that you say, "Oh, actually, it doesn't matter uh, uh, what I believe; it's not really important." So I can merely be listening to others. Um, I think that that cannot be a, a, an orthodox Christian position. We we cannot say, you know, that it doesn't matter whether Christ was risen or not, because our whole understanding of the hope for the world depends on that. Um, so we 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 should say it does matter. On the other end, there is a risk, of course, that I know that it does matter, but I can't face it, therefore. Uh, and therefore, I shut down. I shut down uh, 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 upon myself without really listening. I'm, I'm, I'm just engaging with others in order to get my own arguments across, but I'm not really listening to what the others bring, other bring to the conversation. Um, and then demands, of course, a significant growth in our own understanding so that we are able to engage with, with confidence. Well, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but I, I do love the just the title of your book, Humble Confidence. And it struck me at a time uh, for several years now, I've been working on, on trying to understand the psychology behind the theologies that evangelicals bring to the encounter with other religions. And one of the things that psychologists are really looking at now is the concept of humility. And it's usually defined as a rational awareness of the limitations of, of how much you know about another's politics or religion and what and yeah. that seems to me to be a little short-sighted. I, I disagree. I think instead of being, we need humility, certainly, but I like this idea of humble confidence. How did you and your co-author come to develop just that basic idea that you used in the title? Um, partly it is because uh, you I think we are aware that uh, what we try to do in this book will not easily be welcomed. I think on the one hand, there are those who will say, if you engage in conversation with others, uh, realizing that you yourself are rooted in a specific historic context, you are already a relativist. You know, they they believe that we should do apologetics because we need uh, to uh, defend that we have an absolute truth. I believe we relate to an absolute truth, but we do not have it. That we have an absolute truth, which is based on universally accessible, uh, uh, rational basis that everyone who has can see or need to accept. With so so they will not like our book. On the other end, there are many who would say. Uh, but uh, if you if you engage in apologetics and inter interreligious dialogue, you're not really listening. You're only trying to get your 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 idea across. So I think that I, what we do is not a bit of not a middle road. It's not like being uh, a bit relativist and a bit absolutist or so, as if you can do that in the middle. We 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 try to show that you can be fully confident and fully opened and in order to to already relay some of the opposition we expect 
and we experience in dialoguing about this book, we 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 say from the very beginning, uh, we think that a combination of humility and confidence is possible. Um, but it's also a pointer, I think, to the fact that in order to engage in apologetic dialogue well, um, the, it's not just about knowing the right arguments, being a quick debater. It's really about your attitude, your attitude in relation to others and your rootedness in the ground of our faith, which is Christ. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Well, I, I was also pleased to see that you, uh, you're you aware of the, the challenge of secularism. You yourself mentioned that was the environment you had been raised in, but you're dealing in the interfaith context. Do you think perhaps Western apologetics has been too focused on secularism and hasn't uh, provided enough tools and reflection on navigating the waters of religious pluralism? It, it seems that uh, that Western apologetics basically has one type of audience in mind, and that is the audience of, say, the, almost the secular scientists. You know, that, that's the, 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 uh, the, the ideal opponent is, uh, say, the, the Oxford atheist, you know, um, and um, th there's a couple of problems with that. By doing that, you effectively raise this uh, Western atheist or Western secularist or Western indifferent person or Western postmodern person on a pedestal as if this is the most intellectual position possible and we need to relate to that. Actually, there are forms of Hinduism, Buddhism uh, that are very intellectually profound, maybe intellectually more profound. So, so, so you we shouldn't put that position on a pedestal. Um, it also means that you are developing apologetic arguments that will not relate to most people in the world. In percentage-wise, the number of atheists and agnostics is shrinking, you know, and 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 it's not it's it's small compared to say. Muslims. Muslims are not worried about science and religion. They're not worried about uh, whether God exists. They're worried about completely different things. Yeah. Um, but furthermore, there's not only an issue in relation to the rest of the world. There is also an issue in relation to the West itself. If you have that approach to uh, apologetics, you basically make the well-educated secular person the norm of what the western thinker does and the west itself is so modified we and 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 that's that that it's socially layered in terms of education um, but you have new spiritualities uh, you have now people sort of locked up in conspiracy theories very different again and we need in the west to be very aware of these different audiences um and we might be able to relate to a uh intellectual secular culture and uh not have any way to converse with these other groups um, or the the other influences in the west because you you relate very well to in in in, in your work to um new spiritualities um, but it's not merely the case that you have these small groups of people have committed to these new spiritualities. Uh, you have also 
these broader influence of these new spiritualities that many people uh, play with, like, you know, the number of people who do not consider themselves religious, but uh, when confronted with death, they like the idea of reincarnation is, is, is significant in our society. That's just one example. Yeah, it's it's always been curious to me when I see a lot of times in a media accounts, even in Christian materials, to refer to so much to secularism. We certainly need to be aware of that, but it seems that the uh, the multi faith, the interfaith context needs to be considered as well. You note in your book that you're writing for an upper graduate and and graduate level, uh, or undergraduate and graduate level. Um, what key takeaways would you want to have for for that audience or or other readers? Uh, where your book is is presenting a new model that might be difficult, but I think it's got some promising things to say. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, I, I guess it it demands some some uh, focus for uh, for for reading this book. But that's always when you start uh, pointing it to a new direction, you you'll you'll need to do that. Um, I think that um, there are a number of lessons there that uh, pastors can. Uh, he too, and that they can uh, easily share sort of with broad sectors of their congregation. And that is, you know, if you if you want to uh, speak to others, uh, try to grow in confidence, know why we have confidence in Christ and why it's the case that when we are confident, we don't need, need to fear others. We don't need to close in on ourselves and uh, uh, teach each other to uh, have the courage to to truly, truly listen and confidently witness to Christ, you know, so that that that's helpful in a much more wider set, set session setting, um, and I think broader or, or or more specifically in an in an academic context, it's it's about having people realize that what we consider rational is uh, profoundly shaped by our communities, our histories, our mental makeup etc but that doesn't make our rational choices purely relative it just makes them located and that means that we also need to ask what is the value of the specific location of the christian community in a christian in a tradition that starts with uh, jesus christ well i again i have thoroughly enjoyed your book my, my hope is that uh folks will take a look at this and then Maybe take some of those older apologetic volumes dealing with other religions that use more of a, a traditional rationalist kind of refutation of worldviews approach and set that aside and give this uh, thesis uh, a consideration. It, it's a wonderful book. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, John. John, great to talk to you. Well, I want folks to look at the uh, program notes for this episode. You'll find uh, a link uh, to Benno's bio and a link to the book that uh, he authored with uh, Gang Santana. Again, that's Humble Confidence, a Model for Interfaith Apologetics. And I highly recommend it. want folks to seek that out. Until the next episode of Multifaith Matters, I'm John Moorhead. Thanks for watching and listening. <laughs>